Hi there. Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. I recognize that uh, we all have different definitions of success. For some, it's a sizable paycheck. Mine is helping people wake up and inspiring them to accomplish their goals and live their very best life. These are my passions, and that's what I'm going to do for you. I want you to stop tripping over small challenges and prepare to rise above the bigger obstacles that life will present to you. The Money Making Conversation interviews provide relatable information to the listener by career and financial planning, entrepreneurship, motivation, leadership, overcoming the odds, and how to live a balanced life. My next guest was born in Washington, D.C., but was raised in Durham, North Carolina. That is where he. Uh, that is where his journey started to become a legendary style icon and uh, former creative director of Vogue magazine. His new memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, offers a candid look at who's who of the last fifty years of fashion. This engaging memoir tells, with raw honesty, the story of how he not only survived the brutal style landscape, but thrived despite racism, illicit rumors, and all the other challenges of this notoriously cutthroat industry become one of the most renowned voices and fa- faces in fashion. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Mr. Andre Leon Talley. Good morning, Rashawn. How are you? Pretty good, good my morning. friend. Uh, let's get to, to let's, let, uh, thank yeah. you for calling in on Money Making Conversation, sir. Yeah, my yeah. pleasure. Let, Happy let, to be let, with you. Let's, uh, let's talk about your style on the cover, because I was reading the book, and in the book, there's a photo in 1983. That shows you sporting a very similar hat to what you're sporting on the cover right now. And then yeah. I go further back. There's a similar style, but there's much more of a floppy brim on it. Now, Correct. okay, <laughs> you know, I'm a fashion guy. So, so I loved you. I had a great time reading the book. But let's talk about this look on the cover right quick, this hat that I saw yeah. in 1983, but an earlier version, earlier with a floppy brim. That hat is the same hat that's taken in a photograph in 1983. It's the same hat I took in a photograph on the cover. And that is the hat that I, I, I've, I've had most of my adult life. It, I was born in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a classic boater. And the floppy one was a Paris hat. That was a hat that had been bought and purchased in Paris. And I don't have that sloppy one, the earlier one. I don't know where it is. May have it at home in the closet. I'm not sure. Right. But the one I have uh, on the cover and in 83, it's a hat that's always traveled with me. I've kept it all this time. And it is my signature hat. I love the hat. Mm-hmm. It's wow. a hat that I think uh, it expresses who I am. I, I think it's classic. I think it's it, it, it symbolizes jazz, blues. Right. Right. Creativity and and elegance. Well, you know, I, I've worn hats. You know, I don't wear hats anymore like I used to. And mm. when I go, I like by several of them, like three different styles. And you 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 locked mm. into a signature brand, which is commendable. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so so but you had to go through several before you got to this one hat here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did. I did. I did. I, as I said, the one, the floppy, soft, floppy one mm-hmm. uh, was a very beautiful hat from Paris, France. Mm-hmm. Came to me in about the 70s. Well, as a child, I was drawn to, to, to hats, and I, I think I had beautiful hats when I was a child, like, right. you know, going to church. Uh, not ex- extravagant as these straw hats, mm-hmm. but, you know, felt hats and snow caps and ski caps and all that kind of stuff. I've always been drawn to a hat. I think it's just the, 
exclamation point to your look. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting in your book. You say you found your fantasy world in books, records, and classical music, Nina Simone, mm. Aretha Franklin. And at yeah, the age yeah. of 12, your world became the glossy pages of Vogue. Talk yes. about that journey of those, because I know that I always tell people you, you find yourself when you're young. And if you, and mm-hmm. really, if you understand that's where your gifts really are, that when you're in your 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. you should be making money money off of your gifts if you stick oh, to it. Well, I did. I did. I made money. I got good paychecks in Vogue <laughs> for the 38-odd years. Someone asked me in England on a, a radio show, why did you stay there for so long? And I said, because of the paychecks. Right. It was good paychecks. Well, you know. And when I discovered Vogue magazine in New York, the Durham Public Library, it was a revelation to me. It was a world that I was not exposed to in my home, and it was a beautiful world. It was a world of literature, art, music, glamorous people, famous people, beautiful people. And it was a, a world of substance and style, and I just gravitated towards that. I loved Vogue, and I loved any sort of um, tributary that came off the river Vogue, Life Magazine. Sally Kirkland was a great editor. She had great fashion stories, the New York Times fashion supplements. So I just, I was an only child, and mm-hmm. I just was pretty much was a loner. Right. And I, when people were playing basketball or baseball, I was in my house tearing out the pages of Vogue, not for the beautiful pictures only, but for the words, for what the words spoke to me. Right. The, the stories spoke to me. The way that people looked in their homes spoke to me. The way the men, they had a column called Men in Vogue by Camille Douay. Right. He was French. He lived in New York, and I met him. And he he just, the, the, his column, Men in Vogue, this is just where I wanted to be. You know, they wore velvet jackets. They wore shirts with ruffles. They wore velvet slippers. And it was all very much what I wanted to be. And I, I dreamed about this world. And I suddenly was thrust into this world. By 1983, I went to Vogue as a news editor in 1983. By 1988, I was promoted to creative director of Vogue. We know, the first I, black I, man ever. Well, I don't want to get to Vogue yet because your journey to Vogue is an interesting one. And that's sort of a compelling one because in the book you talk about, you know, well, I don't talk about it. These are actual dealing with racism, dealing with rumors, yeah, yeah. dealing with lives, dealing with name calling and all that. But let's even go further mm-hmm. back when you're in your youth, when you were, when mm-hmm. your, your parents uh, brought you from D.C., to live with your great grandmother and your grandmother, and uh, my grandmother, your grandmother. Tell, tell us about that experience because that, that's where your faith really was. Uh, was, was well, uh, growing up in my grandmother's house as the only child, I was pampered. I was spoiled. I was totally. Was that a good spoiled. thing? Was my, that a good good thing? You being pampered and spoiled was that a good thing? Yes, it was. Okay, good. It was. I was pampered <laughs> and spoiled, but also I was given the great uh, lessons of life mm-hmm. and examples such as values, church discipline. I had chores. Right. I had to make up my bed perfectly, as Michelle Obama taught our daughters to make up the beds perfectly in the White House. I had to polish the floors with Johnson's face wax. I had to go outside in the woods and chop the wood for the uh, fires. Mm-hmm. And when I was very young, we had we did not have an electric stove. We didn't get an electric stove until about the 60s. I remember my great-grandmother and my grandmother always cooking on a, a iron, a cast iron stove. And I'll never forget that stove. It was about 58. And that stove had to be constantly stoked with wood and coal. And I would go out and have to get the scuttles of coal, even in the snow, in the cold weather, and stoke that wood-burning stove. That stove heated the kitchen. It had a side um, a, a container where you boiled water, where you had constantly hot boiling water mm. for the house, for household duties. So this was a, a very important thing in my life. And so 
all of these choices led to to the good conservative old fashioned values, values and verities that people have in the South when they are black and growing up in the black segregated Jim Crow South. I mean, we the, the civil rights law was signed over in 1963, but I grew up in this great household from the 50s and into 63. By 63, I was in high school. I think I was in the 10th grade. Absolutely. So it was just it was just a very wonderful world. Uh, my grandmother, she she was a domestic maid at Duke University for 50 years. She finally retired, and the last 30 years of her life, she was re- retiree, but she just got up, and she was like a pioneer woman. She was strong. Mm-hmm. You know, you would have these images of pioneer women. These women can do anything. They, they can cook. They can squirrel, skin a rabbit, skin a squirrel, mm. make a squirrel stew, Brunswick stew out of a squirrel. You know, they kill a squirrel. Absolutely. I remember I my like grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... and just do all everything, and plus do all the laundry, the household laundry. Cook, clean, scrub, sit down, read her missionary helper, get up on Sunday morning, cook, cook a pan of biscuits for me before church, come home after church, and cook the afternoon supper, fried chicken and greens or string beans and sweet potatoes. and just It's just a simple world. The world was a world that had foundations that carry, I've carried on throughout my life. So, so I the think. so the fact that your your, your great grandmother and your grandmother raised you in Durham, that really laid the foundation for who you are today versus your parents Absolutely. raising you. Absolutely. It, but my parents were always in my life. My mother and father lived in D.C. and they were not domestic workers. Right. They were uh, a grade uh, grade level government workers, mm-hmm. and they always supported my my upbringing, my schooling, and my they gave me everything I wanted. They would send money down to my grandmother every two weeks for my you know books. Uh, I had wonderful clothes. I had the first set of World Book Encyclopedias mm-hmm. on my street. Mm-hmm. That was I was very proud of that. Record I still player. Have them in Come on, throw it all out. There. Come on, Andre. Throw it yeah, out. Your daddy was doing players. it. Your yeah, daddy was laying it out for you. <laughs> typewriters, record players, mm-hmm. and supplement allowance so I could then go to stop going to the library to read Vogue. I would go buy Vogue. It, right. it came out twice a month in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Reeland published it on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Now, that was the fee, and I would go across town on Sundays. When it was coming out, the magazine, I looked forward. That was my big, you know, outing to go buy Vogue magazine. So I think I had a privileged upbringing, although I was in a very restrained space in the world of blackness in right. the segregated South. But but in that whole process, the creative process, you know, when I, when the, that's all that just keeps, you were allowed to be you. Am I saying that yes. right? Yeah, you perfectly. You said it perfectly. Mm-hmm. I was allowed to be me. My grandmother did not. As long as I did the right thing, <laughs> I could just do anything. My grandmother gave me free reign, and I sat back, and I had a room of my own, and I read Vogue, and I listened to Laura Nino, Lero, Nina Simone, Mozart, Beethoven, Mahalia Jackson. I listened to my records. I had my own world, and books, books for my friends. I had some friends, but books were my friends, and Vogue was my friend. I mean, I, I, I lived for Vogue magazine. Now you, but you talk about some you know, nasty kids and bullying, and when we yeah, look back yeah. on, you know, everybody thinks like bullying started, you know, recently. Bullying. Oh no, 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 no! Oh, but that, it was awful. But you know what? When when I go back home now and see my friends, I've maintained good friends from mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. I can look at them and say, "Hey, look, look at me now. How you doing? I'm doing. 
I, I'm out in the world. You know, I've got a book. I've had a documentary called The Gospel According to Andre. Mm -hmm. I went there and showed it at Hillside High School. I showed it in one of their great weeks. They had me there for three days. We showed the film. We had events around it. They gave me, the mayor gave me the seat to the kitty and a proclamation, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when you go to those those uh, high school reunions, yes, you sir. can say, look, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, uh, and I, I, you, I can feel you okay. I, I like to believe that uh, the, one, of my, one of the best lines in your book was that, you know, you're in your 70s, but you feel like you're 29. Thank that, you. Thank that, you. That's that's my favorite line because I tell people that you know it's it's, it's a mindset. Yeah. It's a it's, it's a how mindset. you how you walk, how you communicate. I'm not trying. Mm. You're not trying to say you being 29. You just said the uh -uh. mentality. I, the mindset. I am fresh. Come on, Andre. Curious. Tell them about it. Tell them about it. I wake up every day ready to learn something new. I attack. I am fresh. I'm still learning knowledge. And thank God, I had early on this. Uh, passion for books and book reading. Right. When I turn the page of a book in this pandemic, if I'm sitting down with a book, it is a happy moment for me to sit down on my front porch and turn the page of a new book that's coming in the mail from Amazon. I mean, I just got a whole slew of James Baldwin books. I think that James Baldwin, what he did and wrote and said in the 60s is so relevant today. So all this summer, I've been reading everything I could get my hands on by James Baldwin, mm -hmm. including his last interview in 1987 before he passed away and that came to me last week and i i've been just reading and i'm i'm just every day you can learn something new i was young i was i love fashion by the way i always say as judge judy says they don't keep me here for my looks they keep me here because i'm smart okay well, well, that is my motto. That is my motto. They don't keep me here for my looks. They keep me here because I'm smart. Well, it's smart in so many ways. You know, learning French, which and you know, which allowed yes. you to go over to yes. France and, uh, and yes. participate yes. in the fluently participate in the yes. Paris yes. fashion yes. world. But more important, yes. now, before we end this break, I want to talk about you graduated from HBCU, North Carolina Central University. Central University, yeah. And uh, uh, was that significant for you then, or is it more significant for you now that you graduated from HBCU? Uh, it's more significant for me now because I'm proud of that. I was proud of NCCU, mm -hmm. and I, 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 that's where I got the scholarship to go to Brown University Absolutely. and get my master's degree. Absolutely. So I'm proud of that. It, it, it means a lot to me. Why did you write this book? Why did you write this book? I wrote the book because I felt that I was approaching the seventh decade of my life, mm -hmm. and I felt that I had to leave a legacy recorded by me, factual. I had so many stories to tell that were great. I had so many scars that I healed, my wounds healed it. Um, you know, I experienced racism, mm -hmm. ageism, mm -hmm. sexism in my career. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that it was important. And, and luckily, the book came out at a timely moment when we, everyone is talking about systemic racism in our country. Right. Uh, you know, tearing down the monuments, the Confederate flag, right. our terrible president, the whole thing. Absolutely. And um, I felt that I had to write this book because I had done a, I had participated in a great documentary that came out of me in 2018 called The Gospel According to Andre. And the love that I saw from the people who watched that documentary, not only famous people, but just people, in normal people walking the streets. So I saw your documentary. I love it so much. I so much. That gave me the confidence to write the book. The mm -hmm. book was a no-brainer for me. I sat down and wrote the book all from memory. I don't have notes. I don't have diaries. I don't have journals. It comes all from my memory. 
think. Well, you know, it's really, I can tell because it's like little, little nuggets you drop in, you know, like, yeah, and, yeah. Like, they you know, just you, come to me. They're just, right. You know, and that, that that's the beauty of people realize when you write the book, you know, first you just, you just write out and the general thoughts that you remember, you know, so yeah. the, the layers start dropping in there. Like yeah, when you were yeah. shopping in Paris with Diana Ross. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell us about that. That was a moment. That was a revelation for me. <laughs> Diana Ross, the first time I ever met Diana Ross, I was having lunch with her in Paris at this famous restaurant called Maxine's. It's been, I know that. Know, I've, been, I've eaten there. I've eaten there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know that, it's in films. Maxine's has been in films. Uh, the film Gigi, uh, a great Technicolor film in the 50s. Maxine's is a, a, a moment of style. And on a Saturday morning, we were going into Maxine's, uh, uh, Betty Catru and Francois Catru and I, and Pierre Cardin, and Diana Ross was coming in for lunch. And she came in with this amazing fur coat to the ground. We had lunch, and we went straight to the jeweler store. And I was so impressed because it was the first time I had ever witnessed. You know, I was young. I was in Paris. I was 27. A black woman went into a very fancy jewelry store in Paris of a faubourg. They didn't ask for a credit card. They said, yes, Miss. they knew she was Miss Ross, of course. This could have been an imposter drag queen. They sent the jewels to a hotel. No checks were issued. No bill of sale. No questions. Miss Ross, you will get these bracelets in your hotel by 5 o'clock. And, you know, of course, they, were, they, they, they she asked what the prices were. And then she turned and she said, would you like a little present? And I said, oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, you so- said no. Come on, Andre. You said no. Well, you weren't allowed to take gifts. My my company was allowed oh, okay. me to take gifts from okay. someone. Mm, okay. So I thought if I got a bracelet from Donna Ross, and they see they they'd fire me. So it was ethically incorrect for me to take the bracelet. But I was so impressed that a woman of color could go into Paris, walk into a store, no matter, and just be respected the way Donna Ross was. They didn't say, "Oh, may we see your credit cards, or may we see your identity? They may we see your passport? We could we call your bank?" It was a Saturday afternoon. They right. recognized her and they said, Miss Ross, these will be delivered to you this evening for you to wear for we were going out that night for dinner. And they were delivered and she came to dinner in these bracelets. I tell you, I'm, I'm talking to Andre Leon Talley at the book, The Chiffon Trenches. Andre, I like to believe that uh, it all kind of started for you in 1974 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art Institute in a, a fantastic lady who took you under the wing. I want to say her name, right? Diane Freeland. Diane Freeland. Diane Vreeland. Diane Vreeland. I know I had to get that name right now. Because <laughs> this, this young lady, she's the, she's the juice for you, man. She's the juice. Oh, for oh, you. oh. She, she was, the, she was the, the, the empress, the oracle. She was the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. She was the most important fashion woman of her time. Mm-hmm. She was the fashion editor of Vogue from 61 to 71. She'd been at Harper's Bazaar for 28 years as the only senior fashion editor. She made images that are now legendary at Bazaar and at Vogue. And everyone who is anyone who's in fashion today or who wants to say they've got style had to be approved by Diana Vreeland. And there I was. Her volunteer in 74 for six weeks on a show called Hollywood Design, where I learned everything from Deanna Vreeland. I mean, there's a school of Vreeland, and the school is you don't go to school and get a certificate. You just be in her presence and you learn by listening. 
Mm-hmm. I learned from her by listening, the way she described clothes, mm-hmm. the way she described the linings. Mm-hmm. She gave as much focus to the lining of a dress as she did to the outside of a dress. Right. Her sh- shoes were polished with the soles of her shoes. Not the uppers. Her soles were polished with a rhinoceros horn. I don't know why, but her soles of her shoes were, were polished. polished like the uppers. Her $5 bills, they didn't have uh, Uber cars and limos at the curb. People took taxis in New York. Right. Her maid, French, Yvonne, what's her name, would pot, would iron her $5 bills to put in her envelope evening bags when she went out for dinner so she'd have money to get a cab home. She had her newspapers ironed so she didn't want to read a wrinkled newspaper in the bathtub. She had the newspapers ironed. She had the soles of her shoes polished. polished. Now, what it sounds superficial, but what is, does that stand for? Discipline, maintenance. Cleanliness is close to godliness. This is what she stood for. These were rituals that came from an Edwardian. She grew up at the end of the 1990s in Paris. And this is just the kind of ritual that she believed in. The way my grandma believed in waxing the polished floors with paste wax. These are just things you do to keep yourself up, to keep your to keep your values up. You you see a polished floor, you're happy. And uh, you, Mrs. Now, Andrew, you said she, she she grew up when? She was she was born in 1890, so okay. she grew up at the end of the Edwardian era. Okay, cool. That was okay, like cool. 1900s to 1920s. Right, 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 right. In Paris, so mm-hmm. the Belle Epoque. She she was a young girl at the Belle Epoque. You know when they mm-hmm. had courtesans mm-hmm. and the coronations of the king, and she saw all these wonderful things, and she she just loved the the, the horses and the way the horses were decked out. And they were just as decked out as the people, the saddles and the reins and the the, 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 the the horse riders. Everything she described was so narrative. She told every dress in the exhibit would have a story behind it. Yeah. Because every dress, who is wearing the dress? Yeah. Where did she wear it? Right. Who was she? And what does she mean to the world? That's Absolutely. what was important awesome. to her. You know, the interesting thing in reading your book was that every page I turned was a nugget to me. A, 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 really, you know. A golden nugget, I hope. A golden nugget. There's golden nuggets. Well, there's no iron pie right here, my friend. This is golden nuggets here, okay? And so, <laughs> and right. I say, when, I, when I say that, it's the, it's the fact that uh, it, it could have been expanded more. It could have been more yes. than just okay. one or two pages. Listen, Rashawn, there's a third book in me because I had the contract, and I'm proud of the contract I had from uh, Penguin Raven and House Valentine. Mm-hmm. But the contract said I only had to write 80,000 words. Right. I could have written 160,000 words. Know. But this is the book they wanted to they wanted to publish a book for a certain size. Right. And, you know, the format. But I could have written 160,000. I could have still been writing to this day and still could be writing. Well, because that's, that's, that's interesting stories. Like, you know, like the whole period when you started out, of course, you know, and then uh, you basically was starving or then that Christmas period when uh, when she told you yeah, not to leave. Said, don't go home. She said, don't, don't go, go home. home. Don't go home. There's nothing at home. And it's really true. You know, when you go back, <laughs> man, it kind of like breaks your values, breaks your motivation. You fall back in yeah. old habits. And that's what she yeah, was telling yeah. you. And then that whole Paris run, which was yeah. a genius period of your life, I feel. Because, the moment, the zenith moment of my life. Yeah, because the of the fact that, first of all, you're a black man, tall black man. Yeah. Speaking French. Only one on the front row, only person on the front, front row, row black. 
but then but then that's when it turns dark in your life you know the well it turns the, dark because people are jealous and racism comes yes, up yes yes people yes, calling yes. me queen kong yes sir. allegedly one girl called me queen kong and it took the paloma picasso the daughter of the famous artist picasso to tell me and she said you know this girl is going around paris and calling you queen kong and people are laughing at you but i love you and i said okay and then i just kept that bottle up and i never told anyone about that until I had this documentary and I sat down and talked about it mm-hmm. in the Vogue uh, archives and I revealed that in 2017 and this this was a hurting thing you know this was hurting me and then one of my bosses came and said one day stood up in the office and said we've heard you've been sleeping with every designer in Paris men and women and I thought well God that, that, that what I, I would be so busy Am I a stud? What is this? And then I realized how racist this was. Right. I recently had an email from the man saying what a great book it was. But he didn't know at that time how hurtful he was. You know what I did? I went off and and weeks later I resigned. I quit Women's Wear Daily. And the doors opened and I wouldn't have gotten to Vogue had I stayed in Women's Wear Daily in the position that I was in. Because I thought, this door is going to close. I went to the Madeleine Church. This is a church where Josephine Baker was funeralized mm-hmm. in Paris. Lit the candles, lit three candles, candles, right? Yeah, I lit the candles, and I went back, wrote my letter of resignation, had it notarized at the British American Embassy, the American consulate, and then received sent it to the office because I thought I was smart. I thought I'd better have this letter to prove that I resigned and wasn't fired because, you know, right. they were, could say, Oh, well, Andre was, you know, there was Horrible. money was missing from the petty mm-hmm. cash. No, no, mm-hmm. money missing from the petty cash. Yes, yes. And they were yes. already accusing me of stealing sketches from Yves Saint Laurent and passing right. them off to Givenchy. Based on your relationship with Givenchy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. Givenchy. Mm-hmm. Say Givenchy, Givenchy. Oh, okay, good. Cool. Sorry about that, sir. Givenchy, Givenchy. Mm-hmm. You go get Givenchy. me right, Andre. You go get me right now. You know, this is your world now. <laughs> keep, keep me rolling right, my friend. I read a great uh-huh. book, but I know I was going to throw out one name bad you going to correct me on. <laughs> tell your check. wife I said it. Tell, I told you I said Givenchy. Givenchy. Oh, my goodness. You oh, know what you said? I love it. You, you know, know, when you're tired, you got to say the names right. You can't go say... You know, like the girls say, say Versace, yes. Versace for yes. Versace. Yes. It's Versace, yes. not Versace. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, it, 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 I, it's one part of the book I love that I want to talk about. Your experience if we, when you went to, for one year only, Ebony and Ebony. Jeff. Ebony. Ebony. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great moment for me. That was, that, I, I, you know. I'm going tell, tell you why I loved it. I love, I'm tell you why I loved it. You said, okay, they, they didn't know what, I, your, your family didn't know anything about what you were doing in Paris. But once no. they found out you were working for Ebony and Jet, Lonnie, our baby done made it. Our baby yeah, done yeah. made I, it. They made it. He made it. He made I made it. That was the greatest year. Oh, Mrs. Johnson was a great woman. She was a fabulous lady. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, Mrs. Johnson. I learned so much. She had such style. And, you know, she started the Ebony Fashion Fair. That Absolutely. was her idea. That was her. And yep. she took it all through all over the country, the Virgin Islands, these fashion shows. She showed the world what style could be. Her fashion fair shows were legendary. Yes, it was. And she would go to Paris and buy all these extraordinary clothes. She didn't sit and buy a little doll suit. She knew that the people, when they went to the show, they wanted to see extravagance, fantasy. Mm, right. She'd buy the most extra, extraordinary pieces and paid for them full price. Yes. And she started doing it in the 50s. So before I got to Paris, she was the only black person on the front row. Mm-hmm. And they respected her pocketbook and her style. 
and her expertise. She was highly respected and revered in the world of fashion in Paris. Mr. Celeron, Mrs. when I got to Ebony Magazine, Miss Johnson said to me, Andre, Andre, you got to get me a picture with E. Celeron. I want to have a picture with you and E. Celeron. And I thought, <coughs> no, that's why she hired me just to get that picture. Well, the first time we went to Paris on the Concorde, mm -hmm. backstage, I had the picture with E. Celeron and Mrs. Johnson and myself. And I had that boat on, I had that same hat on. <laughs> with a Georgia or brown Georgia money suit cocked to the side cocked to the I side I had that hat on well let, 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 let me skip I know we're running out of time but I had to get this one story and I'm mad because I looked there's, there's no picture of you wearing this so I was kind of mad at you here it was okay. the, it was the when you when you broke code and you went yeah. to this black tie event oh. wearing that gown over the shirt yeah, and was, those gray socks yeah. Yeah, ba what? bathrobe, bathrobe. Carl Lagerfeld's cashmere bathrobe dressing gown. Yes, yes. And yes. I, I had to go across. I didn't have time to go home and change. And Carl said, put this on. This is will go. We got to take one of my white shirts. I had on gray trousers. Wear one of my white shirts and a black tie. It was a scandal. Everyone, and when I went to Maxine's, everyone in it was a scandal. A black man at a black tie dinner in Maxine's with a dressing gown on. Now, listen, it wasn't just a bathrobe. It was a cashmere, black, piped in satin, friend silk satin tassels. Love you. And it was dope. And I walked into Maxine's and the Red Sea parted and the jaws dropped all of Paris. And the next day, I got on the phone with my best friend, Betty Cartoon. She says, Andre, you don't even know that's all they talked about. They are shocked, but it's very amusing. It was a sort of social scandal and i don't have any pictures of it because no one thought to take pictures that was 1978 uh, someone drew it carl lagerfeld drew it but i don't know what that drawing is it's probably just shame on you he did a drawing of it shame he did on a drawing you. of it shame on you the great the best <laughs> story in the book best story in the book and i don't have a photo but one of my favorite uh, photo i'm gonna just let you know that was on page right. 177 when you yes. were in that splendid multi shot in paris and June of 2013. That picture right there, my friend, I hope you have that framed in your home. That is Which a picture. Or you have the, you're, you're, uh, you're on the uh, balcony in uh, your uh, Ralph Lauren uh, dinner suit. Uh, oh, I got that framed. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Andre. Oh, I got that framed. Oh, Andre. I got all those clothes. Uh, all those clothes are here. Uh, I got uh, that. That I got right that. there? I got that. That's a bad, yeah. of anybody. That's a bad look right That's there, brother. A, that, that is a picture that says, I have my man, because I've been in Paris. Uh, I, I you got the. I want to thank you for coming on my show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Well, so I enjoyed talking to you, and I want to come back on your show. Absolutely, book I have. absolutely. Right. Thank you, my friend. You stay safe out there, and I keep. I, I'll support this on my social media. I support it okay. on my fan club. Get the word out. Plus, my wife know you. Okay, thank you, my give, friend. Give best regards to your wife. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Bye bye. Thank you, Rashawn. <laughs> bye bye. I'm Rashawn McDonald. Hi, if you want to hear more money-making conversation uh, interviews, please go to, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I'm your host.